0: Welcome, Uh, we're going to jump back in, I'll kind of catch us up to speed briefly, but obviously there's so much material to cover, I can't always catch us all the way back up to speed. Let me open us for the word of prayer and we'll jump in. Lord, you uh, love me more than I could ever fathom, and you love these people more than I do and more than I could ever fathom. Um, And so as we come here now, uh, we, we just want to know you, we want to know who you are as you revealed yourself in your word. And we pray that our time together would be profitable to that end um, as you just help us to understand your word now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we've been seeing the way that the Lord is kind of re-implementing, restoring and completing his purpose at creation, which was lost, derailed because of man's sin. We've seen how the, in the first week, how the Torah, the Pentateuch, really lays the foundation for that, how the Abrahamic covenant and the the promises to Abraham embody kind of God's method for doing that. that. That's how he's going to work. Everything else subsequent to that is sort of an outflow, a fulfillment, an expression of those promises to Abraham, and then saw specifically how God at, for one period of time during the Old Testament period, is doing that uh, through the Mosaic covenant. We kind of looked at some of the details there, how that sort of, I, I use the language of administrating the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Can you guys hear me okay in the back? Okay, great. Um, administrating the fulfillment of those promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So we've looked at a variety of things. We started the first week kind of looking at that theology of the Pentateuch as a foundation for the former prophets. And then last week, we started into kind of looking at how to read narrative, because that's the method we're going to be applying as we work through all the former prophets and started into Joshua. And so this week, I'm going to really pick up the pace and going to finish Joshua, and we'll look at Judges. Um, So just jumping in, we we left off after the first section of Joshua, but just to kind of cover the beginning again, um, the purpose of Joshua, Joshua teaches that the Lord can be trusted to fulfill his promises. First thing, uh, Joshua teaches that the Lord can be trusted to fulfill his promises and that the fulfillment of those promises depends on Israel's faithfulness to the Lord. And both of these elements are conveyed to the reader in both the historical account and in Joshua's charges to Israel at the end of the book. And so building on that teaching, the book calls its readers to trust the Lord and to be faithful to him. And then we saw the structure, really four pieces to the structure. There's first the preparations to conquer the land in chapters 1 through 5, then the section covering conquering the land in chapters 6 through 12, then the division of the land in 13 through 21, and then finally the charge to serve the Lord in chapters 22 through 24. So we covered um, chapters 1 through 5, the preparations to conquer the Lord. Essentially, here we saw that the Lord charged Joshua with his task of leading Israel into the land and taking possession of it. We saw preparations made and we saw them cross the Jordan. And we ended with that um, figure, the commander of the Lord of hosts meeting him. And so now we'll jump into the second section, the actual conquering of the land. In this section, chapters 6 through 12, this is the one that is probably most familiar to us. It records the battles, you know, Jericho, Ai, um, the the Gibeonites, those types of things. And by the end of this section, by the end of chapter 12, Israel has generally subdued the land. The first half consists of two lesson-teaching battles, first at Jericho and the second at Ai, in chapters 6 through 8. And at the end of chapter 8, really at a hinge in this section, Israel engages in what we might call like a covenant affirmation ceremony at Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. And then in the second half, chapters 9 through 12, Israel, er, we'll see a summary of the rest of the conquest. So let's jump into chapter 6 and the, uh, the section on Jericho. So the first city that Israel comes to after crossing the Jordan is Jericho. Now I'm going to give you just a few slides here, not because this is incredibly important, but because it's sometimes, when you're reading narrative and it has a lot of geographical references and you can't kind of mentally see those on the map, it can become almost like mind-numbing, like you just, like, I don't really know what I'm reading, and so sometimes being able to picture it somewhat where things are, which is what the author assumes the reader's able to do, will help a little bit, not, again, not because any of this is going to like unlock some massive insights into the text, as much as just kind of give you some categories to understand the narrative as it's unfolding. So, um, yeah, first, in terms of Jericho, there you can see Jericho. And you can see in the background this little strand. That's the Jordan. So you can see not far. So they would have been down here in the plains of Moab. They crossed the Jordan, and then you can see not very far into the land, there's uh, Jericho. Jericho. There's the mound itself, the historical mound. You can see by the houses around it, uh, not, not a huge city. Maybe that gives you some categories. If you've been thinking of like a massive city, um, wondering how in the world they could make it around the city uh, seven times in a day, um, now you get a better idea. because It's really not not all that large. And then this also here kind of gives you just an orientation. I think this may actually be a video. And I apologize because it's kind of like, I didn't intend for it to be this way, but it like uh, bounces a little bit <laughs> I know it didn't do that when I first created it, but gets <laughs> <Hello? laughs> <Hello? laughs> <Hello? laughs> <Hello? laughs> feeling sick. Ugh. Stop shaking the camera. I know. No. <laughs> That's at least helpful to me, to help me orient, or to orient me, where is this in terms of the, the whole uh, the whole country? So most of you are familiar with the story at Jericho, right? They, they're they told to walk around, march around the city uh, one time for the first six days, and the seventh day, march around it seven times, and when they do that on the seventh day to the priests blow the trumpets, the people shout, the walls around the city collapse, and the people enter the city and conquer it, and as the walls fall, of course, some of the people are commissioned to go up and to um, find Rahab and her family and rescue them because of her faith in the Lord and the promise that they would deliver her. So what's the significance of this? A lot of space is given a whole chapter to the first battle. This is certainly the large, most amount of space given to a single battle uh, in the book of Joshua. It seems the reason that so much space is given, and the reason why it's a bit of a unique, a unique battle, um, I mean, think about that. When else has anyone conquered a city by, like, marching around it? You you can only imagine Joshua, his kind of dismay at hearing these instructions. This is the way they're going to conquer it. But the point seems to be to show that victory will not come by military might, but by the Lord's assistance, that the battle belongs to the Lord. Now, in subsequent battles, they are not fought this way. They're fought generally by more conventional methods. As we'll see when we get to the battle at Ai, they use strategies, right? Like they they place some people behind in an ambush behind the city, and then other people come to the front and draw them out. They're using all kinds of means. But this first one totally circumvents that and uses something that doesn't make any military sense. And the purpose just seems to be to teach that the Lord's going to take care of these things. Whatever means he might use, success ultimately isn't attributable to the wisdom of of the general the strategy or to the strength or the the experience of the soldiers it's attributable to the lord and that's why i called this one of the a, a lesson teaching battle the first of two lesson teaching battles but then as we turn to chapter seven we find not the next city to be conquered as we might expect but a bit of an interlude a scene about failure in battle due to disobedience and the chapter opens by telling the ending at the beginning. So if you've got your Bibles there, look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. So it starts out by kind of with a spoiler. It tells us how it's all going to end, even from the very beginning. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So, after this important clue for understanding what follows, we start at the beginning of the event and observe it as it unfolds. In verses two through five, we're told that Israel attacks Ai, a city so small they don't need to send the whole the whole army. They just send a small group of the men. And yet, they're sent fleeing. And after the defeat, Joshua inquires of the Lord as to the reason, verses 6 through 9, and the Lord explains it's because of disobedience. Specifically, an Israelite has taken for himself some of the things under the ban. Now, the ban refers to things devoted to the Lord. And in the book of Joshua, this always includes killing all of the people in the promised land, except as we saw with Rahab, those who repent, and destroying their pagan religious things. In some cases, it involves giving the items of silver, gold, bronze, and iron to the tabernacle treasury and destroying the rest of the possessions, such as livestock and burning the city. In other cases, the soldiers are allowed to take those things for themselves. But then verses 10 through 12 are remarkably clear Uh, Notice that verse 10 of chapter seven. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the band and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. So the connection between inheriting the Lord's promises and obedience, could not be clear, could it? Because of disobedience, there's no more hope for you to inherit those promises, You know, assuming things don't change. And in light of this connection, it's kind of a bit of a an aside, a parenthetic statement. Uh, this text being only one example of many we could point to, it seems that it might be maybe a bit misleading or unhelpful to speak in terms of like Israel's right to the land as though it's something that's inherently theirs without regard to their obedience, as though simply by being of the lineage of Abraham, they have an inherent right to it. The Mosaic covenant again and again insists that they don't have a right. The land isn't theirs, it's the Lord's, and he's willing to essentially lease it to them if they maintain the covenant. So I think it's just one text that helps us to see that Uh, their right to that land. The fact the Lord's actually working to give it to them is dependent upon their faithfulness to the covenant. Now, to remedy the problem, the Lord prescribed that Joshua identify the person who has taken the things devoted to the Lord and that they devote him to the Lord by killing him. And this is what Joshua does, is the Lord identifies the guilty man, narrowing it down from the tribe to the clan to the family and then to that specific person. Now, I've got a little note for you there in your notes, and I'm going to skip over it. Um, just about some connections in the language where the author seems to intentionally, in chapter 7, verse 21, use language to explain what Achan's doing in light of what Eve does with the fruit in the garden. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over that, but you can see that there where I've highlighted some of that language and even kind of commented that the significance just seems to be to note that just as you have Israel now entering what's essentially a new garden, a replacement garden, you really have kind of a similar fall happening here and in some ways even kind of setting us up to anticipate what's ultimately going to happen at the end of the Old Testament, at least later in its history, just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. um, It seems that Israel is going to likewise be exiled from the land. Now it's clear why the author, in writing this book, for the purpose of demonstrating the Lord's faithfulness to His promise, while also calling Israel to obedience as the way to inherit those promises, would give a whole chapter to this event, this interlude, of talking about how they're going to make no more progress after this first battle if if they continue in not obeying Him, because this whole pur- purpose is to help call them to call them to trust Him, to obey Him if they're going to continue to inherit the promises. Next, chapter 8, we come to Ai, the next city. Now, with this disobedience dealt with, the conquest of Ai resumes in chapter 8 and is completed successfully this time. Now, it's interesting to note, as I mentioned earlier, they employ normal military strategies this time. Um, It's as though the Lord having made his point that he can conquer however he wants and that victory is up to him. He doesn't need means maybe I might say obvious means, they still did something, right? But, but not the obvious means that could be to which the victory could be attributed. Um, having made that point, he kind of goes back to his normal method of working, which is working through means. You have Joshua being a faithful, courageous captain, giving good strategy to his men, them having to use military strategy to be able to conquer these cities. But at the end of the day, they must not forget that that victory is ultimately attributable to the Lord. So another city is conquered. Israel is faithful. And then we come to the end of chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. And I said this is kind of like a hinge in this first section. I call this the affirmation of the tenancy agreement. Now back on the plains of Moab, while the Lord was giving instructions to Israel through Moses about what life in the promised land was going to be like and what he expected of them in the promised land, he instructed them to engage in some actions of covenant remembrance when they enter the land. And those are found in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 2 through 8 and 12 through 13. And according to those instructions, when they enter the land, they're to go to Mount Ebal. i got a slide here for you. There you can kind of get an idea. You can see where Jericho is. You can see where I is with the second marker and then where Mount Ebal is. So they are instructed to go to Mount Ebal. And on Mount Ebal, they are to set up large stones, coat them with lime so that they can write on them, and then write all the words of this law is what the Deuteronomy prescribes on those those stones. They're also to build an altar and offer up sacrifices on top of Mount Ebal. Then secondly, Deuteronomy prescribes that six of the tribes stand on Mount Gerizim across a valley from Mount Ebal, and the other six tribes stand on Mount Ebal. So these pictures aren't super clear, so it's a little bit hard to see the dimensions, but you have Mount Gerizim here, and hopefully you can see this is sort of a raised area here. You have Mount Ebal here, and you have the valley in between. I believe this is the mound of ancient Shechem and all of this sprawling area is modern-day Nablus So you can get an idea here of kind of how you could see people standing one on one mountain, one on the other, and being able to talk back and forth to one another. And those six tribes on Mount Gerizim Are to repeat the covenant blessings, while the six tribes on Mount Ebal are to repeat the covenant curses. And so this is the very thing that Israel does, as recorded in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. After conquering the two cities, Israel travels significantly further north through enemy territory to obey the Lord's instructions for them in Deuteronomy. It is kind of interesting. They haven't conquered this area yet. Um, They conquer those two cities, and they. Go through enemy territory, get there to be able to do this. Clearly, um, you know, from a military perspective, this doesn't seem like a good strategy. They haven't conquered this region yet. Shechem's located between these two mountains. So you have an enemy city located right here between these two mountains. They're on the uh, either side of. Um, but it seems that what this evidence is just a commitment to covenant obedience, rec- recognizing that faithfulness to the covenant is the most important thing, even more than military strategy. And this activity is a remembrance of the covenant between them and the Lord in a commitment to it. The instructions of Deuteronomy looked forward, all of the instructions of Deuteronomy looked forward to their life in uh, the promised land, instructing them instructing them that uh, how they were to live there. And now that they've arrived, they affirm what we might call a tenancy agreement. That is... Uh, What it was for the Lord is clear that he is the one who owns the land. He will cause Israel to live there. He will cause them to flourish with abundant blessings, but they must keep the terms of the agreement as presented in Deuteronomy. Thus, as one author put it, this action serves as an acknowledgement and a proclamation of the fact that possession of the land and Israel's faithfulness to her covenant obligations were inextricably related. That's exactly right. It was for the purpose of reminding Israel of this that the Lord prescribed this action in Deuteronomy 27 as soon as they go into the land to remember the covenant and that Joshua led the people to do it. Now, as we continue on to uh, the rest of this section, chapters 6 through 12 and chapters 9 through 12, we find the rest of the campaigns throughout the land. And these all kind of hang together and bring us to the end of the second portion of the book. Whereas chapters 6 through 8 moved much more slowly, chapters se- uh, 9 through 12 moved very quickly, recounting a large number of cities being conquered. Um, yeah, it seems that with some important points made in chapters 6 through 8 about how the Lord will fight for Israel and the centrality of covenant faithfulness to their success— the author can now turn to emphasizing their success in taking the land by the quantity of success documented you know having been having established those principles and then being faithful now he's going to show the lord's able to do this abundantly with all of this success success after success and then having entered the land from the side at its middle israel turns to israel turns to the south and conquers first there in the southern region, and then heads back to the north and conquers the regions in the north. And that's kind of how it lays out. So you see a brief outline I gave you there. Um, you know, first you see in chapter 9 that the whole story about the Gibeonites, which I could recount for you, but we'll skip over that for the sake of time. Then the southern campaign reported in chapter 10, um, which in verses 42 to 43 has this triumphant note attributing the success entirely to the Lord. Then chapter 11, at least the first part, records the northern campaign, again noting that the victories are attributable to the Lord. And then in the second half of chapter 11, we have a summary of the campaigns. And notice how chapter 11 ends. It says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, Thus the land had rest from war. It sounds pretty conclusive, doesn't it? As though all of the land promise has been fulfilled is what it sounds like. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But that's at least initially what it sounds like. And the point is to help us see that the Lord is keeping his promises. The Lord is being faithful to give them the very thing he promised he would give them. And then chapter 12 summarizes um, all the kings that have been defeated in the midst of this conquest. So summarizing this section in terms of how it contributes to the purpose of the book, this section very evidently carries forward the author's intention of encouraging his readers in a later situation to trust the Lord to fulfill his promises and to obey him. It does this by both showing the Lord's faithfulness in the past and by showing how that was tied to Israel's obedience with them inheriting the promises when they obey, but the inheritance coming to a grinding halt when they disobey. And now moving into the next section, section 2, chapters 13 through 21. This explains the division of the land among the tribes. It opens with this charge for Joshua um, to divide the land and give it to the tribes. Now notice what he says in chapter 13, verse 1. Very much of the land remains to be possessed. So you've got this kind of interesting balance here of on the one hand victorious triumphant comments about all the land being possessed and yet on the other hand about very much of the land remaining to be possessed. And at this point I just want you to note that both those things are affirmed. Um, I have at the end in your notes, and I've actually kind of written it out in full, not just an outline um, this is at the end of the Joshua section, just recognize we wouldn't have time I have basically two sections in there for you. One of them basically tries to help you navigate this tension between, on the one hand, statements that all of the land had been taken, and on the other hand, that much remained. So you can read that on your own time. And then also I have in there basically something that's well beyond the scope of teaching the book of Joshua, but is more, you might almost call it a systematic theological concern. And that's just thinking through the whole nature of this ban, this command that the Israelites ought to slaughter everyone in the land. Man, woman, child, um, just helping you navigate that. Quite frankly, that's not a concern of the text. The text doesn't even raise any kind of ethical questions about it. It simply assumes it. It's, it's it's us who have these questions about this. And so it's a bit beyond just teaching the book, beyond the scope of just teaching the book. And yet I thought it might be helpful. The text inevitably brings those questions up. And so you can read through that this week. Um, so just give me a heads up that that's there. And then as we continue on through this section, we find that The rest of chapter 13 reviews the allotment for the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. Then you find things like the introduction to the division of the land west of the Jordan. And I'm not going to walk through that, but I gave you there an outline. So as you read through the book, you can kind of see how it breaks down. Essentially, a whole lot of info about the boundaries given to the people. And then notice um, in chapter 21, as we come to the end of this section, this summary statement that the Lord had fulfilled his promises. Chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And So again, as I'm saying, one of the major purposes, one of the two major purposes for the book is to emphasize that point. The author of Joshua wants his readers and subsequent generations to remember this as they read the book. The Lord is faithful to his promises. And the book adequately, amply demonstrates that. So now to summarize this second section, we're moving obviously very quickly through the second section, chapters 13 through 21. Really this, that statement we just read in verses 43 through 45 adequately summarizes what the section is about. And to us, the amount of space given to, to narrate the divisions of the land might seem a bit uh, hard to understand, a bit of overkill, a bit uh, unnecessary. But we have to remember that it wasn't simply about conquering the land, but it was about possessing the land. It was about living in the land. And this section is an important sequence to conquering the land if, if they're going to actually live there and prosper in the land. So this section contributes to the author's purpose for the book by documenting that with the division of the land among the tribes, the Lord had fulfilled his promise to them, and thereby emphasizing for the book's readers that the Lord is faithful to his promises. And now moving on to the last section here, charged to serve the Lord, in chapters 22 through 24. So in this final section of the book, the author continues to narrate past events but seems to do so with the explicit aim of having these charges from Joshua to the Israelites of the conquest generation leap off the page such that it's almost as though these charges from Joshua to his own generation are becoming through the page, through the written word, charges of Joshua to the reader. First, we find in chapter twenty-two this return of the two and a half Transjordanian tribes. Those are the tribes that lived east of the Jordan. They return there after having already done their part of helping the other tribes establish their a foothold in the land. And essentially, there was a threat to the unity there, um, and because of misunderstanding, but they were able to resolve that. And the text seems to emphasize just the importance of the unity and the fact that they can proceed on now because there's unity between the tribes. And then we see in chapter 23, charge number one. And as I already mentioned, it is as though the author intends Joshua to speak directly to his readers. The main point is that the Lord has shown himself faithful to give Israel the land, but many of the Canaanites still reside in the land. Israel must press forward to conquer and destroy them. And the Lord will do that for them by fighting for them. Joshua is clear about that in verse 3. Of chapter 23. But they must be faithful to him, which he makes clear like in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 23, verse 11. If however they do not obey, not only will they not be successful in taking the rest of the land, but if they don't obey, they will actually be driven off the land. And again, we see here the twin themes of the book. The Lord has been faithful to give Israel the land he promised to them. But if Israel is to continue to inherit more of the Lord's promises, she must obey him. And the charge ends with an ominous note, much as Moses' words to Israel ended with an ominous note. Look at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 23. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, and you... Know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one of the word, one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you transgress the covenant, note it's not if you transgress the covenant, when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. It's as though Joshua moves from mere possibility of disobedience and resultant exile to anticipation of it. And again, this sounds just like what Moses does in Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it is this very charge to obedience that Joshua is giving as the means of encouraging them to obedience, to inherit the promises of the Lord and the threat for disobedience that the author wants to convey to his readers. Um, And for the the author, this, this very charge here is very relevant because the later generation knows these things all too well. And then we find in chapter 24 what we might think of as just charge number two. There's clearly a, a break if you look at the beginning of chapter 24. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and he gives on goes on and charges them again. So a distinct charge, but in many ways continuing on with this. And again, it's as though the author wants Joshua's words to leap off the page and speak directly to the reader. The main point here seems to be that after recounting the history Joshua's going to call Israel again to serve and obey the Lord, which they agree to do. And Joshua makes this commitment more solemn by having the people make a covenant to obey the Lord. Now, this covenant that the nation makes is essentially a covenant to keep the covenant of Deuteronomy, the one they made on the plains of Moab. It's a covenant made to confirm their commitment to keep a prior covenant. Again, the author intends these closing charges, and particularly this one, to echo across time and hit his readers just as it did those who stood in Joshua's presence. The author is calling his own generation to hear and to heed the charge of Joshua to covenant faithfulness. And then we see in chapter 24, verses 19 through 20, another ominous and abrupt statement. Verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good. And although this may seem surprising, it continues this ominous note that we found beginning with Moses and continuing on through Joshua's words. And therefore, as we continue through these books, the books of the former prophets, we should expect to see rebellion and the covenant curses being poured out on Israel. And then the book ends in verses 29 through 33 with what I just called the end of an era. The book closes with five verses that record several deaths and burials, indicating that an era has come to an end. It also ends on a positive note with regard to Israel's faithfulness. Look at verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. It's not a coincidence that as the fulfillment of promises during this generation's lifetime is remembered, the faithfulness of this generation would also be mentioned. So to summarize this last section, the fourth section of the book, This section contributes to the author's purpose for the book by calling the reader to covenant faithfulness as the means to inheriting the promises to Abraham. And Joshua's charge to the people under the sound of his voice was just as relevant for the audience of the book of Joshua. All right, so then you'll find in your notes there that little section you might think of like an appendix on navigating the tension between fulfillment and non-fulfillment. And then also some notes that I labeled there as how to think about the ban. Obviously a lot there to cover, so I'm going to just let you read that if you're interested so we can continue moving on. Just kind of in summary, though, here, before we move on from the book of Joshua, you know, okay, so I've explained the purpose of it, namely um, to teach that the Lord can be trusted to fulfill his promises, and it did that by recording how the Lord did that for the conquest generation and to record that the fulfillment of those promises depends on Israel's faithfulness to the Lord by recording instructions to this effect, whether from the Lord to Joshua or from Joshua to the people, and by recording how Israel succeeded with ease when they were faithful and yet failed to succeed at all when they were disobedient. Both of these elements are conveyed both through the historical accounts and through Joshua's charges at the end. So in summary, the book calls its readers to trust the Lord and to be faithful to him. And this could be relevant to Israel really at any point in its history. As I noted, the book doesn't give us a clear indication as to date, but we can pretty much narrow it down to like the very end of the judges period or early in the monarchy, like during Saul's reign. Um, But certainly it would be relevant at any subsequent point. And even in fact, this basic call to trust the Lord to fulfill his promises and simply obey him is applicable even to us. Sometimes we understand the mission of the Lord. We understand what God expects of us at this stage in salvation history. That is what he's taught us in the New Testament, right? What he's taught us in the New Testament is what he expects of us at this stage in salvation history. But when we look at the situation around us, we can easily slide into thinking that the instructions are just a little too simplistic, uh, maybe a little bit naive, not adequate for the situation at hand, much like Joshua and the rest of the Israelites as they approached Jericho. Much like them, we're tempted to lean on our own understanding and try the approach that seems best in our own eyes, right? It would have been easy for Joshua to have committed the same mistake that the Israel did in Kadesh-Barnea. To look at what they were up against and think, "This does not seem like the right strategy." Right? Maybe we should take some more time here, stockpile some state-of-the-art weapons, spend some time training our men, maybe working on some diplomatic relationships, Right? all kinds of things that might seem like a good idea before launching into this battle. But what were they asked to do? Not to lean on their own understanding, to draw from Solomon's words, but to trust the Lord and to obey him, even when the instructions were something that seemed as simplistic and naive as walking around the city and then blowing trumpets. And the Lord blessed that, didn't he? The Lord blessed that, and so similarly, we must trust the Lord and basically stick to his instructions, not be drawn away by what seems right in our own eyes. We're told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That is, we're told to to pour ourselves into the mission he gave us, that's the following me portion, and recognize that in doing so, our lives may be short and difficult. That's the take up our cross portion. But what do we often do? We spend our time trying to pad and preserve our lives, right? Thinking that and somehow that's going to ultimately end up accomplishing that mission better because whatever we use to justify that. But just a good reminder that what we have to focus on is just stay focused on what the instructions the Lord's given us and trust that he will bless that. To know and to obey him as he's revealed himself in his word. All right. Now let's move on to the book of Judges. At the end of Joshua, Israel has conquered and taken possession of the more mountainous regions of the land, and the entirety of the land has now been divided among the tribes. But much of the land remains to be conquered and possessed. This was not intended to be finished overnight. But each tribe was responsible to work toward conquering the rest of their allotment and not become contented with the status quo. The major threat involved in leaving some of the nations unconquered is that the Israelites would become comfortable with them. They would befriend them. They would give their sons to their daughters in marriage or give their daughters to their sons in marriage, and they would ultimately be pulled into worshiping their gods. And this is a major threat since obedience to the covenant stipulations is required for inheriting the promises. To worship other gods would move them away from possession of the land and toward eviction from the land. But this arrangement is not an arbitrary one. When we remember that all of this is part of the Lord's plan to restore and complete his creation purposes, which I said at the beginning was his creation purpose was to, fulfill, to fill creation with his images, who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf, when we consider that's the purpose, turning away from him to worship other gods destroys the very essence of what the Lord is working to restore. It's not as though by saying, hey, if you're not going to be obedient, then then you can't have the land that the Lord's just calling them out on some kind of contractual technicality. This is like the the warp and woof of what the Lord's purposing to do that people be reconciled to him and living in relationship to him. If they're worshiping other gods, all of the rest is, is more than secondary. It's tertiary. It has no relevance. It can be forgotten if they aren't first going to be living in relationship to him. So continued progress in the inheritance of the promises to Abraham and the restoration of God's creation purpose depends on Israel's obedience At the end of Joshua, the nation made a covenant affirming their commitment to follow the Lord fully. And we saw that that generation did that. They were faithful, but a new generation has arisen. That generation passed on, a new generation arises. What will Israel do in this next era? Now, looking at the situation of the book, the book provides no indication as to its author, and it could have been written in a wide range of, I gave you a pretty narrow range comparatively for Joshua, but for judges, it could be anywhere from the early monarchy, roughly like 1050 BC, to the early post-exilic period, from the late 500s or 400s BC. The book contains some clues that might allow for more specificity about when it was finalized, but those clues involve difficult interpretation regarding both their meaning and relevance. If you're interested in pursuing that more, I think I left in there a footnote for you about just... Two of those texts that wherever you land, you have to find a way to deal with both of those texts. I just don't think it's super important for us to know exactly when it was written. What's the purpose of the book of Judges? The purpose is to call the reader to obedience to the Lord and to hope in a coming king by demonstrating the consequences of disobedience. You could think of it like holding up a mirror. You hold up a mirror by showing this is what you've become because of your disobedience and by presenting a king as the solution to the downward-spiraling moral decline. So now having laid out that, let's look at the structure and then see how the author accomplishes that through the structure, section by section. So the structure starts with a summary in chapters 1, 1 through 3, 6. Then we move into these six cycles that illustrate that summary. And then we have these little two vignettes at the bottom that give us a view at the bottom of the downward spiral of moral decline and its solution. So hopefully you can see here, or you've also got this in your notes, just kind of the the structure here. You've got the summary, the two vignettes at the end with the six cycles in the middle. And then both the summary and the two vignettes are kind of two sections, two subsections within those opening and closing portions. All right, so jumping in to the first section, the summary. This opening section essentially summarizes the book of Judges. Despite significant progress in the fulfillment of the promises during Joshua's time, while the nation was faithful to the Lord, after Joshua's death, the people of Israel began turning away from the Lord and moving down a path of moral decline, which descended to appalling depths. As a result, the Lord resolved to no longer drive out the nations before them. And this opening section consists of two parts. There's 1-1 through 2-5, and then there's 2-6 through 3-6. In 1-1 through 2-5, we find the progress and failure following the death of Joshua. We first find progress and failure in the south. I'm just going to quickly move on rather than commenting on that for the sake of time. Then we find progress and failure in the north. And then, at the beginning of chapter 2, we kind of move beyond this dry explanation. So chapter 1 is largely just recounting the events with somewhat minimal commentary. The string of failures, and then even some of the victories. But when you find these victories, and then suddenly these failures that come about, you start asking, what went wrong? Why in chapter 1 do we find both in the south and the north all of the tribes are, after some successes, beginning to find failure. They're beginning to be stymied. They're stuck. And they're actually beginning to settle for the status quo. They're just dwelling with the Canaanites in the same cities. What happened? So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the angel of the Lord arrives to provide an interpretation and a rebuke. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said... I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your forefathers and said, this is what the Lord says, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars." So see the two sides of that. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, now your side, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But what's the the outcome of all this? The last part of verse 2, you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? The angel of the Lord asks. What's going to be the outcome of all this? Verse 3, therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Uh, bohem, it's just the participle for, for the Verb to mean to weep, so it's weeping. It's essentially what Bohem means. Um, so they named that place Bohem, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. So the Lord is clear that He's committed to keeping His promise to them. You guys might remember way back when we looked at Genesis chapter fifteen. Genesis chapter fifteen involves Abraham not one bit. He's asleep while the covenant's made, and the point is, it, it's the Lord's going to do it regardless of what happens. But that doesn't mean that each and every generation has an equal opportunity to inherit the promises. The only generation that's going to inherit it will be those who are faithful to him. But the Lord's never going to give up. He's never going to reach a point where he's going to say okay, I've spent enough time, I've been patient enough, I'm giving up on this covenant. So he's clear his faithfulness to the covenant's not the problem. The problem is they have been disobedient. And as a result, the Lord pledges to not drive out the inhabitants anymore, but to leave them in their midst. Then from chapter 2, verse 6, through 3, verse 6, I have what we have here what I call the trajectory traced. In many ways, this, like essentially a chapter, 2, 6 to 3, 6, gives us in a nutshell the entire message of the book. It, it really encapsulates all of it. The author picks up at the point at which chapter 1 began. So notice, this is not continuing on from chapter 5. This actually goes all the way back to the point of Joshua's death and reviews that same time period, but looking at it from a slightly different perspective. And essentially, the rest of the book unpacks this summary. So notice chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. That's what we saw in Joshua. Then... Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. All the generation, sorry, all that generation, also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then continuing on, so you see the clear shift after Joshua's death. Now notice this cycle in verses 11 through 19. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtarot. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and, get this, act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Now, we get to the climax of the summary here in verse 20. So, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he said, because... This nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So the Lord resolves to no longer drive out the nations that remain in the promised land. And why? Not because he's not faithful to the covenant, not because he's unable to drive them out, but because they have transgressed the covenant. And then in verses uh, 22 through 3, 4, just to summarize that, uh, we learn that part of the reason why the Lord left nations under Joshua, he didn't destroy them all while Joshua was still around, was to test the subsequent generations to see if they would be faithful to him. And he says, basically, what was the outcome of this? Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, the outcome of this test was that the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So if you wonder, if you want to, like, in short section, see all of the book of Judges, this section, 2. six through three 3.6, really summarizes all of it. And then, um, I, let me just read that summary there for this opening section. The author holds up a mirror for his readers, providing them with a theological interpretation of the decline in the nation that transpired over several centuries. And after the death of Joshua, the subsequent generations turned from the Lord and worshipped other gods. The result was the Lord turned against Israel, replacing blessing with curse. Just as the Torah taught, inheriting the Lord's promises is dependent on faithfulness to him. The reason they sank to the pathetic situation they did is because of their disobedience, but this assessment contains in it an implicit call to repentance. Now, we'll move quickly through through the six cycles. Um, Basically, having provided that high-level summary, now we get down to the ground level, and we see this illustrated with what we might think of as like case scenarios. And each of these is structured around these cycles with a judge, a major judge at the center. Now it's helpful to understand, just real briefly here, that we think of judge, we think of someone whose role is primarily judicial, right? They sit and they make decisions on cases. But really, that's what, what these judges did was more of they were like tribal chieftains and military leaders um, leading these groups. Sometimes we see, like with Deborah that she does that more judicial role, but it's obviously a much broader thing, and that's helpful to understand. And each of these cycles follow a recurring pattern. First, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then the Lord sends an oppressor against Israel. Then Israel calls out to the Lord. Then the Lord raises up a deliverer, and then there's peace in the land. And so I gave you guys a chart here. I'm not going to talk through all of it, but it just kind of maps for you how in each one of those cycles, um, you can see those steps filled out. And one of the things you'll notice is that not every step is there for every cycle particularly as you get down to that lower right-hand corner, you start seeing that at the very end, cycle six, Israel never pleased to the Lord. He never cries out to him. And there's never in the last two cycles stated that there was explicitly a deliverance, and neither was it stated that there was peace in the land. So that's there for you as you read through the book to help you follow. So I'm not going to spend any time on each of these scenes, but you've got an outline there in your notes just to help you see where each cycle begins and ends. And like I mentioned from the summary, it's critical that you see that this is not like just recurring laps around a circle. It's more like a corkscrew. There's a downward spiral. Each time you go around the circle, you're descending deeper and deeper on the path of moral decline. And Samson, the last one, is particularly interesting because Samson in many ways is a figure for Israel. You find all of these parallels, which I'm not don't have time to draw out, but all of these parallels with Israel as a whole such that it seems that he is kind of Israel in a nutshell. Um, he is uniquely set apart among Israelites as a Nazarite, just like Israel was uniquely set apart among the nations as God's chosen people, his treasured possession, Exodus 19. We also find that just like Israel is again and again said that their downfall, one of those things is their penchant for foreign women. We find the same thing with Samson. Um, and also, this is what I found particularly interesting. The first time we find in... in uh, in the book of Judges, the statement that it was right, upright in his eyes, was twice with uh, Samson regarding the Timnite woman, that she was right in his eyes. So it occurs twice. I believe it's chapter 14, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 7. She was right in his eyes. And then we find that occur at the beginning and end of the next, this last section about all Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then also I've given you, hopefully I left it in there. Do you guys see like a little table that shows? Yeah, yeah. So I think again, again, it's not not a mistake. I think it's a paradigmatic text in the garden. But again, it seems that there are some parallels there potentially between um, the language used for Samson, who here is a figure for Israel, and the language used um, at the garden for what the woman does when she sees the tree. It's a delight to her eyes. She takes it. Uh, Samson saw the woman of Timnah. He said, get her for me. Go take her as a wife for me. Get her for me. She looks good to me. So we see a lot of parallels there. Again, the Lord's helping us see through echoes from earlier scripture kind of make theological sense of what's happening. Again, they're turning from him. And now Uh, Just a summary of this section. In this section, the author illustrates the cycle he presented in chapter 2 with six of these cycles, each with a major judge at its center, and with each cycle, the nation descends deeper and deeper in disobedience. Now, finally, I'll wrap this up very quickly. We're out of time. The two vignettes at the end. The view at the bottom of the downward spiral of moral decline. So you might think of these almost as appendices, and I'm not even going to bother right now, because for the sake of time, to summarize the events there. You probably remember them. But in many ways, when you read them, you're just appalled. Like, things don't even make sense. The world's upside down in these. You're finding about priests doing things, having concubines, and, and you know, people saying, oh, look, I found some money here, some coins. I thank the Lord for this. It, it, to thank him, I'm going to make some idols. <laughs> and it's just like, what is going on? And that's the purpose. That's what you're supposed to be thinking. But the whole section, you can kind of see the purpose of it, like the summary of it, by looking at the beginning and the end. So look at 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's sort of how it begins. And then the very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's a summary. What's going on here? You're supposed to see that no one's doing what's right in the Lord's eyes. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. And again, the Lord's, basically the author's holding up a mirror to Israel. This is what you become. It's it's terrible. In fact, in chapter 19, this whole scene at Gibeah over and over again has such clear echoes to Genesis 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The point seems to be that it's because of the wickedness of the Amorites, Genesis 15, the Lord spewed them out of the land, And yet Israel is no better than them. This seems to be just the same. Again, you've lost any right to the promises of the Lord. And again, an implicit call back to obedience because the Lord's faithful and merciful. But what I want to close on is this. The king, this despair. You're left with this despair. Okay, yes, I see that covenant obedience is what's needed. And yet by the time you get to the end of the book, what hope is there? Like you can maybe utter that. Yeah, yeah, that's the hope, covenant obedience. But... It's hard to believe that Israel actually has any hope of doing that. But it's super interesting that where you find those summary statements in 17.6 and the very end, it's not simply that every man did what was right in his own eyes, but juxtaposed with that, there was no king in the land, right? The very beginning of this last section, there was no king in the land, every man did what was right in his own eyes, at the very end. And then right in the middle, I think it's 18.1 and 19.1, you have two more statements. There was no king in the in the land. Now, it doesn't say everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but that's the context it's set in. So what's the point of juxtaposing those two? Well, it seems pretty obvious, right? That there's a direct causal connection. There being no king is what's causing every man to do what's right in his own eyes. So there seems also to be an implicit hope that a king would somewhat resolve this. So there's held out at the end of the book, in the midst of despair about Israel's covenant faithfulness, that there would be a king to come, or maybe kings, who would lead Israel, how would the king help? Well, clearly, in the context, it's going to be by helping them to obey. And we looked at Deuteronomy 17, our first week together, we saw that's one of the, main, the king's main roles, to know the law himself and to lead the nation in obeying God, to obeying the law. And there's so much more I'd want to say about that in terms of tying this hope for a king in with everything that precedes this section, and even how it unfolds. Because many of you are probably already in your mind saying, that's ridiculous. Do you not remember what happens in the rest? Like Israel or the kings are not the solution. Um, But we'll get there. Next week, when we jump into 1 Samuel, it's two weeks from now, because next week will be Easter, we'll talk through kingship, because that's when they appoint their first king, how that fits into the storyline with everything that precedes, and then we'll see as we continue on through this how it pans out. All right. Sorry for keeping you a bit late, but we made it through both books. So thank you for your patience. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your help. We pray, Lord, that we would walk away as those who still have the very same hope from the book of Judges of a king who not only has accomplished for us forgiveness of sins, but as we've been learning from Romans 6, has actually affected within us An ability to be faithful. As Paul says in Romans 8, we're actually now, because of the Spirit who's with us, able to obey the law. We're able to be faithful. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And I pray, just thinking about that application for all of us as we go into the rest of this week, that we would be those who, who knowing that truth about the resurrection power that we know within the inner man, that we would walk. Um, in newness of life and remember that this is because we haven't been left in this situation but because you to keep your covenant and to save your people to fulfill your purposes sent this king in the person of Jesus Christ to make that possible we pray this in Christ's name amen